Hi, welcome to the Conversations About Consultation podcast. I'm Jessica Rowley and you're here listening to some of the conversations that myself and my co-host Dr. Emma Kennedy and Emily Crosby have had with guests from across the world about consultation in psychology. Myself and Emily are trainee educational psychologists at the Tavistock and Portman NHS Trust and Dr. Emma Kennedy is Deputy Course Director and teaches the consultation module on the Doctorate in Educational Psychology course. The three of us have a keen interest in consultation and hope that this podcast offers a platform to discuss different views about the topic and future directions in consultation. We hope that you enjoy listening to the episodes and if you want any more information or are interested in being a guest with us, please feel free to get in touch. Welcome to this episode of Conversations About Consultation. In this episode, we speak with Helen Kerslake and Jane Roller from Westminster, Kensington and Chelsea Educational Psychology Consultation Service about their journey to becoming EPs and their experience of working in a service that places consultation at the centre of the work that they do. Welcome this evening, Helen and Jane. Thank you very much. So it's really lovely to have you both here. I guess to begin with, we'd really just like to know a little bit more about yourselves and your journey to kind of becoming um, an EP and and the current roles that you you have at the moment. Gosh, who shall kick off first, Jane? I think you, Helen, you've been practising longer than I have. Okay, so um, yes, my journey to being an EP. I, um, well, I did a psychology degree um, initially, which w- was helpful. Um, and then I had an intention of becoming a psychologist um, and then changed my mind because um, I decided that I wanted to be a, uh, an educational psychologist. I'd done my PGCE at the Institute of education and I got a job with the Inner London Education Authority as a teacher and um, really really enjoyed teaching and I encountered the odd educational psychologist employed by Inner London and I wasn't terribly impressed to be honest and um, it sort of put me off slightly so I I, I was sort of in, into a, a completely into a career in teaching and um, I had um, become a deputy head, in fact, of an Islington uh, primary school. And um, I had a period where the head teacher retired and I had to be the acting head teacher. Um, and I, I sort of pretty soon realized I di- really didn't want to be a head teacher uh, for, for long. But um, while, while um, I had that role, remember, this is a very long time ago now. This is completely pre um, um, there being such a thing as Senko's and um, there was you know the the 81 Act was only just beginning you know I had never had any children in my class with a statement etc and um, it was often head teachers who had that role of talking to parents about their children who had learning difficulties or emotional difficulties or behaviour rather than the class teacher or the Senko, if you see what I mean. And so I found myself doing some of that in that role. And I, I never forget this, there was a, a, a parent who actually had a profoundly deaf mother. So she was raised as a child with a profoundly deaf mother. 
who was having difficulties um, forming an attachment with her own child. And she was having this very honest conversation with me. And I remember feeling completely out of my depth. I wasn't a mother myself and all the rest of it. And I was thinking I was being pretty useless, really, but I was quite enjoying it and very interested. And afterwards, she very sweetly said, you know, you're really good at this. You're really good at talking to parents. And I thought, blimey, you know, uh, uh, she's obviously not spoken to people before who were very sympathetic or helpful or something. But it just kind of got me interested in a, a hot, something I'd never thought about before, which is, you know, meeting parents and engaging with them as somebody who's a teacher in education um, and in a, in a very different way. And um, I suppose that was the route into where I've really enjoyed doing joint school family consultations from then on. But it was it, that, that was quite pivotal I'd say as, as a moment and um, I then met somebody who was training at the Tavistock I'd, I'd formerly been a teacher with her and I thought I'd be really interested to apply to do um, um, you know MSc in educational psychology at the Tavistock which I did and I got on yeah. I think I'll stop there and give 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 Jane a chance <laughs> that was a long ramble sorry no <laughs> It's interesting and really, and really nice to hear that there was a kind of yeah. moment where you thought, aha, yeah. Um, yeah. and I'm afraid my, my story's <laughs> much less uh, inspirational than that. I, I knew that I wanted to have a career as a psychologist um, and I was looking at all the different pathways um, and thinking, God, I can't afford to train for all those years to be a clinical psychologist. So I'm going to go down the teaching route because then at least I'll have a salary for a couple of years in between. So that's literally how I fell into ed psychery. Um, but I did um, I did two years in a um, primary school in Southwark, St. George's Catholic Primary School. Absolutely loved it. And to be honest, if if I hadn't got onto the MSc, I, I would have quite happily carried on. But I was lucky enough to get on after two years. And also remember the days of secondment? Mm -hmm. Well, Wandsworth local authority seconded me to do the MSc. So I literally got paid a full salary, a teaching salary to do my MSc back at the Institute because I'd loved the PGC there. And I thought um, it was a course I really engaged with. And I thought, well, maybe... The MSc Ed site will be just as good. Loved the course there too. The difficulty for me was that pretty much on the MSc, I realised the sort of EP I wanted to be. And at that time, Wandsworth weren't using consultation and I had to renege on the secondment agreement um, and have conversations with uh, the principal about because the, the secondment was based on the idea that you'd get a job and then go and work in that local authority so I had some very difficult conversations uh, but to their credit they released me without any financial payback and years later years later at my mother-in-law's party I bumped into the principal since retired and we were having a glass of wine together and this must have been like, you know, 10, 12 years later. And she said, I completely understand now why you wouldn't have wanted to come and work for us at that period of time. <laughs> amazing. <laughs> wow. wow, that's so interesting. And what amazing stories you have um, into your careers. Mm -hmm. I guess I'm just wondering about when you first came into touch with consultation um, as EPs. 
and how you sort of define consultation and what consultation means to you and perhaps how that's changed over the years. I can certainly tell you about how I how I came across consultation. It was because I I had just finished my training or, or no, I was it was still training at the Tavistock. And, you know, it's that period where you've got to apply for jobs and a job came up in Kensington and Chelsea. And I thought, um, you know, I, I'll apply for it. Um, and somebody told me, ah, oh, well, if you want to get a job there, you need to know about consultation because Patsy Wagner, this shows you I didn't learn a lot about it um, at the Tabby because Patsy Wagner um, is is the um, is the person there who's who's developing it and she's runs courses. Anyway, this person who who told me about it lent me um, some. Uh, I think it was like a, the materials from her from the course that she was running on consultation at the time, and and so I read it and um, thought, well, this sounds interesting, um, and th- that was my introduction to it. And then, of course, when um, because you, I haven't, I haven't said it's the only place that Jane and I have ever worked as a educational psychologist. So we both started there, and it's been a hard place to leave, really, because of of the way that consultation was developed. Um, so th- that was my introduction, um, and then very fortunately, th- there was quite generous uh, amount of uh, shadowing experience and so on um, with. Um, with, with Patsy and others, no, not just Patsy, but you know, we, we shadowed everybody else and it was very much part of the model really was, was um, consultation with each other. Uh, and, and that involved um, observation um, and shadowing experiences that we, we, we tried to keep up wherever we could. It wasn't always easy, but we did. So um, yes, shall I, maybe I'll, I'll just mention as well, um, This might really interest you, actually, about um, because people associate Kensington and Chelsea with with Patsy Wagner. But actually, we had a really wonderful principal EP there at the time called Myra Evans, who had come from another local authority. And well, she'd come from inner London, from one of the divisions of inner London um, and of which Kensington and Chelsea and Hammersmith and Fulham formed Division One, as was of the old in London and when she arrived she started kind of meeting this is before the, the borough had properly taken over running all the education services she, she had meetings and conversations with heads within Kensington and Chelsea and asked them what kind of educational psychology service they would want or what kind of educational psychologist their school EP would be like and they said well don't really know but I know we want something different from what we've got now, which was really interesting. And, and I think that sort of, that, that sort of threw Myra to some extent because she wasn't sure either what was needed, but she thought, I know a person who might be really helpful and that's Patsy Wagner. So she literally appointed Patsy Wagner to set up something that was different because she clearly knew a lot about it. And that's what happened. So Patsy was appointed as the um, deputy principal, wasn't she, Jane? Yeah, yes. deputy principal. Yeah. yeah. Um, and with, a lead, with a lead in consultation. Totally it up. Yes. Yeah. So that's how it all began. And Myra was incredibly supportive of that. 
totally supported throughout, even though it was a very different model from the one that she had been used to using herself. Yeah. Yeah. So now I'll leave the Yeah, well, so by the time I came along, um, I, Kensington and Chelsea were a, a well-established service and consultation was up and running there. But I, I first came across it at the Institute of Education because at that time, Patsy Wagner, along with her partner, Chris Watkins, did, um, a, I think it was a 20-week module called Children and Con Their Contexts, which was all about systemic work, interactionist psychology, social constructionism. And Patsy did three or four sessions that was literally around introduction to consultation. And at the time, I was on my first placement in a London education psychology service, and I was doing all the things that consultation wasn't. I was in broom cupboards with kids, um, expected to be an expert, a magician, um, you know, coming up with all the answers, seeing kids and reporting back. And then I was listening to Patsy, and I don't know if you've ever met or listened to Patsy, but she's such an inspirational speaker. And you know, it, I was just completely captivated, inspired and thought this is the sort of psychologist I want to be. Um, I want more of this uh, makes made such sense. It was such optimistic psychology. Um, uh, so I was in this dilemma kind of thinking, well, my, my actual experience doesn't match with the theoretical principles of what I'm hearing. Um, and so a, lucky enough to meet Patsy, but also the course director at the Institute at the time was someone called Ingrid Lunt, and she was my personal tutor. And again, I mean, I've just been blessed with fabulous female role models throughout my career. And I said to her, listen, th this isn't for me. I, I can't carry on doing this, this sort of psychology. And she said, well, hang on a minute. I'm going to send you to Fife in Scotland for your second placement. And um, I was like, okay and my parents lived in Edinburgh so it was about a 45 minute drive from my parents so I moved back home from London and Fife was um, a very progressive service that was applying consultation so I had a fabulous you know went up there in my consultation handbook on my arm saying this is what I want to do and they said bingo we're doing it already so <laughs> it was a perfect fit and, and I was absolutely hooked. And then, of course, I came back and thought, well, where can I work? And I was so lucky because an additional role came up in Kensington, Chelsea. Nobody left, but an um, additional role came up and I got the job. And I've been there ever since with fab team and fab support. And I had to I had to shadow consultation for a full year. That was my induction before I was given any of my own schools. That's that's. No, I mean, now that you do a doctorate, which is three years, that fits much more. But literally, Helen, I didn't pick up my first school till the third term. I was jumping at the bits and, uh, you know, I was it was kind of a little bit uh, daunting because I was getting to see Helen and Vicky and Patsy and Maggie Futcher as well. Um, so you saw a range of different consultation in practice. And then I was absolutely ready to, to be launched, launched into schools of my own. Can I ask you guys, um, one of the things that Jess and Emily have, you know, reflected on, and I think it reflects a view within the wider training group, that at times 
the word consultation gets used, but different people are meaning really quite quite different things sometimes, or that there can be some degree of confusion um, as to what consultation actually means, or what it, you know the kind of defining features and what what makes consultation special, distinctive, unique, or whatever it might be. Would you guys recognize that kind of confusion or complexity? Um, would you would you notice that that is in the wider profession or maybe wider than than where you guys are with such a rich tradition of having had this way of working for such a long time? Yeah, well, yeah. I don't know. Do you, can yeah, you, that, do you that, notice that, that confusion? And I think, I think um, that's definitely the feedback from trainees that go to all the different services and come back. Um, and I also think this, I don't know, I don't think this is a helpful notion, but I think there is, there is a, a notion out there of pure consultation. And I don't think that's helpful because I think the model is very robust and can be applied across a range of settings. Um, but what it's not is cozy chats with teachers and what it's not is information gathering. Um, and, and it is a complex process. And Patsy would always say, if we haven't got the fact that if we haven't got the psychological models that underpin it, then you can forget it. So she talks about the interactionist, systemic and constructionist psychologies. And I think that's the bit that people lose sight of because there are frameworks for consultation and anyone can pick up these frameworks and have a meeting with a teacher. But if you're not applying the principles of the psychologies that inform the model, then you're not, you're, the process gets lost and it just becomes a meeting. Um, and of course, EPs are helpful. We've got lots of expertise. We can give advice. We can give strategies. And that ticks a lot of boxes. But when we actually think, are we being as helpful as we can be um, in working collaboratively? So there are thousands of different definitions of consultation, um, but the one that's, that we like are around it being a preventative, collaborative and creative way of working with schools and that we are facilitating the creative coping skills of teachers and parents. So we're, we're drawing on lots of ideas there and, and no one definition is going to embrace it all. But at the heart of it are the psychologies and the fact that there will be a change narrative occurring in the process of the meeting. Because in a way now, if we've got an idea of what the child's needs are and uh, we can Google it and you can get as many strategies and action plans off the internet as you like. Um, and that's not being as helpful as we could because teachers can do that themselves. So we really need to have this unique aspect of the processing that takes place in the meeting that leads to change. And that has to be informed by the psychologies. Mm. Helen, do you want to add? Um, not, not a great deal because you, you, you sum that up so beautifully, Jane. Uh, just, I think, and you may disagree, um, Jane, but, you know, I think you hear, or I'm experiencing less now, um, services or, or EPs saying, oh, but we do consultation, you know, when you think, well, hang on a minute, I'm not sure you do, or um, what they describe isn't what you would think of as consultation. I, I think I think there's a lot less of that now. And, and, and actually, when... when um, I think a lot of services really are embracing conversation, uh, consultation more than they they used to, which of course is is 
perhaps to be expected, but but also very positive. And so when Jane, Jane when you, um, with along with other um, principal EPs have presented on consultation at sort of a National Association of Principal EP events in London, London-wide. And it's quite clear that many, many local authorities are using consultation and it's very, it's very similar. It's very similar. And, and you know, they've got their own ways of doing it, but it's it's very similar. And, and I think that's very positive. Yeah. So I think things have definitely moved on. From the days of the of, oh yes we do consultation we do cozy chats yes yeah i would agree with that yeah. i think the other thing i was wondering about is is how much has changed and how much things maybe have stayed the same and i know um i have been obviously one of the papers that i would want to be able to think about in relation to con actually the whole special issue of education um, psychology and practice in 2000 was a special issue on consultation and I actually think um, Patsy either wrote the introduction she's definitely written an article within us and, and both of you had written about the development of scripts in the practice of consultation and I, this is a, I think is a you know is a lovely paper um, that point about bringing the psychology in and I think it's a really lovely paper in the way that it's not just about espousing certain kinds of psychology you can clearly sort of see the link between the practice as to what the psychologist would actually do in the room with the teacher for example um, in in making that come more alive but one of the things within that you you know there were there was discussion, I think both of you had made about um, using scripts to explain the, the consultant role, uh, using scripts to try and clarify the consultation process, and that things that oftentimes people were finding themselves having to clarify were, um, you know, how do I use this consultation to get myself a statement of SEN for this child? You know, do you think sometimes there is still maybe um, a driver towards uh, EHCPs or education health and care plans? Um, the, the place of psychometric testing. And that still seems, I know it was if the paper came out in 2000 and we're in 2021, but um, yeah, I was wondering, do you feel those things have shifted or changed or have they become more nuanced or they're still around, but in a slightly different form? Because I think the other point that, that you'd made within that is, is the level of um, complexity that some teachers were trying to manage in terms of the children who are in their classroom and feeling quite overwhelmed by this sort of much broader kind of home context, community context. That to me, when I was, you know, kind of reading again, just feels still quite alive. Those overwhelmed teachers burdened with kind of, how do I, within the remit of my role, make a difference for these children? And that kind of experience being brought to the EP yeah, Did, do you guys feel any of that's shifted in that 20-year period or are they still somewhat the same themes but maybe manifesting slightly differently? Um, I, I do think they're still around, um, Emma, and I think um, that because so, when we're thinking about what are the barriers to consultation, often they are about preconceived ideas about what the EP role is. And I think part of the attempt to write an article about scripts, and some people kind of find the idea of scripts really alarming and won't go to great lengths to say, 
this doesn't mean we're clones or robots, but when, when you practice with peers about how to be as transparent and open um, about what our role is and how we can help to make a difference. And so often schools under enormous pressures and parents with high levels of anxiety are looking for what can be quite a sort of simplistic solution that might be seeing the EP as somebody who can tell me what's wrong and give me access to some resources. Um, and we are part of a process of helping to make a difference, but we've got to be really clear about how we can make the difference that will make a difference. And Patsy sort of really enforces that Bateson term, I think it's 1970s or whatever, the difference that makes a difference. Um, and I think we've all become very practiced about being clear about how we can make that difference. So when um, you might be picking up from a school about, oh, well, we thought you'd do this, or why can't you do this? Or we've got you, we've lined you up to meet with the parent. And the, um, and it's, it's about kind of saying, thank you very much. I can see why, I can see why you've gone about things in this way. Can we just take a step back so that I can um, talk to you about how I think uh, a, a good use of EP time, what that would look like. Um, we could organize it this way. And if there's still resistance, then um, a lot that we can rely on is our good relationships with schools. And we can, I would often find myself saying, listen, I know this might seem slightly uh, unusual way to go about things, but what we know from experience is that if we have time to meet with teachers who don't have headspace to think, two heads are better than one. If we can work with you to try to make sense of the school-based concerns and work out a richer picture, get some ideas and open up some possibilities for change, and then meet with the parents on the next visit, hear their perspective of the concern, what they're pleased to notice about what the school have done. So I'll try to kind of elaborate a little bit what it will feel like in the way that you've talked to us about what this podcast would look and feel like. Um, and always leave it open and say, if, however, after we've had these meetings, you still feel that we haven't got a clear way forward or that we're still struggling to make sense of what's going on for this child, then yes, of course, we can look at what else might be needed in terms of further assessments. Um, and you kind of need them to join you on the journey. So you don't want to get defensive or rigid, but you want them just to kind of trust that it's held. And if you contain it and hold it and reassure them that you've got the skills to support them through the process, then my experience, nine times out of 10, the schools are willing to go with it because they kind of think, what, what, what's to lose? If, if they don't like it, they can have something different. So I'll, I'll let Helen add to that, to that. I'm sure she's got lots um, to say. Well, yes, I, I, I'm sort of picking up on a few of the things that you mentioned, Emma, about, um, you know, EHC requests and burdened teachers and so on. And um, I think, um, like Jane says, that that never goes away and you have to um, you have to sort of embrace it at the time and, and, and address it. I'm, I'm quite um, passionate about that. I'll, I'll sort of come back to that in a minute. But um the other um, thing is that I think I think teachers, and this is I'm sure to do with their training and the, the you know the Senko role developing, um, are 
much more inclined than they used to be when Jane and I became EPs to take responsibility for themselves in having to make a difference for children. And so you, you, you don't um, very often encounter teachers who really think it's not their responsibility at all and just want you to get you know, extra resources to, to, to do that. Um, uh, 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 you know, for them instead of them. I, I think teachers are far more likely the second they hear you say something that, that, that you know, that they think is important to get the pen out and start writing it down because th th than they would have done. So, so um, I think um, that they totally get that they can make a difference, although you often have to remind them. Um, another thing um, that, that, I think is important is that with burden teachers and and you know although although um you know when I was a teacher you, you you didn't have any teaching assistants you had you know you had your primary helper who washed up the paint pots and brought you a cup of tea and that was because you were on playground duty and you didn't get your break on those days um the pressure on us as teachers then wasn't as great in many many ways as it is now and I think you know they're hugely burdened and um, I, I think one of the things that we have to be very mindful of and, and this is where it's important to, to really try and understand what teachers you know um, experience and I remember dreaming about individual I'd wake up dreaming about a child you know that was I was tearing my hair out about or you know who driving me to distraction and um you've really got to show that you are um getting that and understanding that and i always remember that patsy um would say you often really don't need to observe a child to do a consultation a really effective consultation but teachers really like it if you have observed because then they understand that you understand or and even if you see even if you see um the child and of course you know you often have these conversations don't you where the teacher will always say oh typical you know you have that magic touch they're never usually like that and yeah. um and of course that does tell you something they're not always how the teacher is you know saying they are because they, they can be fine and great and wonderful some of the time but um you you've got to you've got to join with the teacher to appreciate that it's really difficult as well if that's what they're telling you and you've really got to listen so if your practice is very much solution focused you can't launch in with solution focused questions without having listened to what the concerns are because they will get that you know that's what you're doing and 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 um won't necessarily engage you know I, i'm a firm believer and you've got to really acknowledge that before you do that um, where their starting point is. Um, so, um, yes, I think that's probably um, all from me for now. I think it's really interesting to hear you both like discuss some of those points and actually hear, like have a bit of an insight into how you practice as well and the, the phrases that you're using and, and the way you're describing things, it's really useful to hear. Um, I was wondering a little bit about how maybe other services uh, who offer consultation, either that's their model of service delivery or something that they, they do. And being part of a service myself that actually they're undergoing quite a, I guess it's part of their service development plan to really hone in on what consultation is. They call themselves a consultation model of service delivery, but actually how, how do they do that in practice and what does that look like? 
Um, and I guess I was just thinking, you know, you said about um, Westminster, Kensington and Chelsea being somewhere that was quite hard to leave and that, you know, Jane talked about that induction process and it was being so thorough. Um, and I guess I was just wondering a little bit about how, you know, what is it about that service that meant they went from maybe not having that sort of model to, to having quite a strong model and everyone being on the same page about that? Because I think that some times especially I think given that I'm a trainee and I'm in conversation with other trainees how different some of our learning is how different some of the things the models that we're taught or the approaches that we have and then what that manifests itself as when lots of different people from lots of different places are in the same service um yeah so I was just wondering a bit about how that feels um, where you are and whether there's a still an induction process where people kind of are on the same page about delivering consultation it's, that's so interesting, Jessica. It's been so interesting for us as a service, too, because part of our history was that um, we moved from being Kensington and Chelsea, which some people would have called. In fact, one of our colleagues, used to, Denise, used to call God's Little Acre, where we, you know, all the schools embraced consultation. They all knew what it was. Every, every head teacher knew Patsy and, um, you know, consultation was embedded. And then we in 2000 and was it 11? 2011 we became the Triborough or 2012 so we joined with Hammersmith and Fulham and Westminster and of course that was three services coming together and at the time Patsy had the um, opportunity or the offer to be um, principal EP of the three services and uh, Patsy never ever wanted to just be a principal she always wanted to be a practitioner a lead practitioner and um, she genuinely didn't feel that if she was principal of the three boroughs that she could practice in the same way so um, she would not have left the profession if if this situation had not been forced up upon the services um, and so um, she spent the last year before um, leaving the leaving the profession literally sort of thinking well this is my legacy handing over to Helen and Vicky and Natalie um, and myself at the time and Nadia Sultan and I can't remember who else was there Helen I think there were five or six of us but just about thinking well how can I support these EPs to carry on doing what she had set up and was her life's work and still is her life's work um, and so we kind of marched into the Triborough, kind of like consultation or nothing. Um, well, not quite in that way. But fortunately, we were we were enabled to come together as three services. And we had Mick Collins as principal, first of all, and now currently Jay Monson. And um, under Jay's direction, um, he took it upon himself to kind of look at different practices and, and decide that consultation was the most robust practice that he could see. Uh, it was the, the feedback from the schools was this is what we want more of. So that became our practice framework. Um, and um, I was lucky enough to work alongside Patsy at the Institute with her and Chris Watsons for several years and also shadow Patsy when she went to work with other services. Um, and so she handed over her, very generously her entire workshop materials to us. Um, and so we've been able to continue. And so part of what we do is we meet once a month voluntarily for consultation development meetings. 
um, with a different theme, always around psychology and practice for consultation, so that doesn't get squeezed out of our team meetings. Um, and I've been running consultation refresher workshops, training days with the Surrey. In fact, last year, Emily, I don't know if we, I don't know if we met there, um, but I've done two days with Surrey, and so in a way we can carry that forward. And what's been interesting for us to see how it's evolved and developed with three services. And it's meant that Helen and I and colleagues have worked in other school settings where consultation was not the main um, modus operandi, if you like. So we've had to be in situations where we've had to develop it, explain it, um, you know, work with the school to, to support them in recognizing it as a helpful way of involving their EP. So it's been really developmental for us, I'd say. We've learned loads. Mm. And I, I mean, just to add add to that, um, I, I, you mustn't get the impression that it was all plain sailing with, with Patsy um, trying to introduce consultation to a team where they had not used it before. So, um, it, you know, there were a couple of very experienced EPs already in that team who were not used to working in that way, who didn't always find it easy, um, but but you know became very convinced of how of how important it was and how well it worked um, but it, it wasn't always plain sailing and whenever you had anybody uh, new or trainees in you know you'd have to kind of go Patsy was always very good wasn't she Jane at reminding people all the time about consultation as she would to her schools because it's it's very easy to slip back into old ways of working very easy to slip yeah. back into old ways of working uh, if you're not constantly um, you know, refreshing it and refreshing your thinking on it and reminding yourself, I think. I mean, I mean, Jane was saying that she, um, you know, she runs a consultation um, working group, development group that, that anybody um, within the, the two boroughs and also Hammersmith and Fulham have been joining as well. Um, can attend, but but it it's very much part, of course, as you'd expect, the interview process when we do have appointed new um, new EPs, and and also when you're in your first year, um, um, it doesn't matter if you're an experienced EP, but if you're new to the service, you there's some additional um, consultation kind of group that you can belong to as well, peer supervision really, uh, with an experienced EP, and the same for. Um, if, if you are completely newly qualified um, and, and trainees are, are offered um, the chance to attend those groups as well. So, so any trainee gets quite a lot of consultation as you'd expect, you know, um, uh, development. Yeah. Yeah, that's really um, interesting, Helen, because I know in my service, as part of my induction as a trainee, I've been in with some very, very experienced um, EPs, but we're all going through the same consultation induction, which is just, it's, I've learned so much and I'm still learning so much and it's, it's brilliant. I was just wondering if when you were doing these training sessions that you were saying about Jane in different services, if you had any kind of critical learning moments or any barriers you experienced in terms of people taking up consultation and adopting it and how you kind of evaluated that process of these other services taking up consultation, not slipping into their old ways of working, which I know can be very easy to do. Well, well, the, the beauty of going along to do training is that you just, you, you hope to inspire and engage and then you leave them to get on with it. 
<laughs> but one of the things we're thinking of doing is um, is uh, inviting if a service has uh, joined for consultation refresher training and they found it helpful and want to be part of a broader network we're thinking of inviting two EPs from those services to come to our consultation development meetings so we can learn from other services because I know years ago Helen you'll remember this when Helen was doing training when Patsy was doing training with London services that there was a consultation development network that used to meet at the institute and that was Surrey and it was Sonia Sharps. Where was she at the time? North Lincolnshire. Wandsworth. There was, um, yeah, there was a few dotted around. Wokingham. Um, yes, I can't, I can't think of some of the others, but there were quite a few um, services that were trying to develop consultation at that time. He used to come to that group. Yeah. So I think the more that services can come together and share and one of the activities that we um, do, and, and this was something Patsy did as well as the a starting point with the services, what is consultation and there are no right or wrong answers and people come up with words or phrases that resonate for them. And as part of that, you can make it into a beautiful word cloud that you then share with the team. And after the first half day, you look back at it and say, which of these would you amend, emphasize, um, want to delete, which what spots been omitted? And as the training progresses over the two full days, it really gets shaped because people keep coming back to key ideas. So every services word cloud, if you like, will look differently. Um, but at the heart of them, you've always got something that talks about hope, <laughs> collaboration, respectful, preventative, creative, facilitating change, you know, those key words that you hear over and over again. So although everyone's word cloud would look different, when you actually deconstruct what's there, um, you can see that. And I think it's really important for a service to own it and not feel that they're trying to replicate something else, but they've grasped what's at the heart of the consultation process. Um, so that's that's been interesting. I think the biggest barriers um, are around uh, probably around EPs who um, find it harder to let go of the idea that we've got a major contribution through use of cognitive assessment. Um, and um, it's, it's always the elephant in the room. Um, and and it's worth getting out there right at the start. Um, and it's this, for me, there's this idea, well, when I started in, in the service in, in Kensington, Chelsea, actually, some, some EPs were still using cognitive assessments to inform their um, statutory reports. Um, and I said to Myra at the time, um, I, you know, I, I'm not particularly interested in using psychometric assessments. So is it okay if I don't? And she said, that's fine, but I will be reading every single one of your psychological advices. And if I don't feel that you have fully addressed um, the child's cognition and learning, then I will direct you to carry out a psychometric assessment. So she'd kind of laid down the boundary. And um, boy, was that a challenge for me. But 
you know, it really made me fine tune my skills. And I do think it's something that when you've been a teacher and come into the profession, you've probably got more of a springboard into knowing a little bit about children's development and their learning. And we had national curriculum and attainment levels. So there are so many things you could draw on and, and Blank's levels of reasoning and Bloom's taxonomy. So there is such a rich resource there that I think... Um, really helps illuminate children's learning um, and I, I was never directed to use one so it always felt like I'd come come through the other side of that but I'm not you know I don't think you need to get defensive about it I can see that some people use them extremely creatively and dynamically and it can enhance practice but what I would always say to a school is um, let's see where we get to using the resources that we've got available to us as people who know this child. I'm bringing expertise in psychology and education and ideas about children's development and learning and systems. And the school is bringing knowledge of the child, the curriculum, the social context. You know, so it's experts coming together. And there's so much that can be learned just through those people coming together and then the parent joining that is another system another context that's coming in and it it kind of um reduces the need for that other bit but i think people feel that it's something we can hold on to that it's a little bit of not wanting to let go of that um bit that only psychologists can do the concern for us now in a traded context, obviously, is that anybody can buy in a psychologist to do a cognitive assessment. So educational psychologists need to have something different to offer um, because anybody can anybody could do those. Clinical psychologists can be bought in by schools to do that now. So I think consultation is an opportunity for us to be creative and work differently. Was just there's so much in, in what both of you have been saying is kind of buzzing around in my head there's kind of stuff about the importance of relationships and you know knowing people and getting them to kind of like give something a go because they kind of try and they know that you know you're going to give it a, you know all those things and um patty's relationships with head teachers and actually that she'd gone around and spoken to you know relationships being essential stuff around contracting and kind of, you know, these misperceptions about roles and expectations and making sure that we do have these opportunities to try and make more explicit um, what, might be, what might be happening. I suppose the other bit I, I am kind of really interested in is Helen's point about this um, pivotal moment as a teacher meeting with a parent. And given that, you know, we come from um, the Tavistock and I was, Listening to Amelia Dowling speaking, um, she, she just would had kind of come into a, a session with a bunch of other people and she was talking about some of the re things that she'd been very proud of as a, as a systemic uh, practitioner. And the one thing that she did mention was uh, she had written a, a chapter in a book about, you know, it was about family and school systems and it was about, it was called The Clinic Goes to School. And it was the offer of a more of a kind of consultancy type service where the clinic would actually, you know, get itself off into the kind of dynamic environment of the school with this kind of particular emphasis on the place of parents and family systems mm -hmm. and how those may be interacting in, in the school context and how we could bring those things together. And yeah, just interested in, in your views on that. 
and how parents are involved and that kind of key emphasis that both of you have made about collaboration, about creativity, about change. How do parents fit within that? How does that work currently? Um, yeah, and any challenges that you have faced with with bringing that dimension in or, or expanding out to that dimension? Oh, gosh. I think, um, yeah, it, it, it's a huge, hugely important, you know, that the, the involving parents. Um, but, but I think um, it, it, in the best possible way, you know, and um, one of the, um, the, the other really important things about the way Patsy worked is that, I mean, and maybe not everybody was aware of this, was that, that she was a qualified uh, family therapist. Mm. And she had trained at the Tavistock too. And um, she, so, so she um, was, was very keen in, in where she could often following up with families and offering them family therapy, um, which she almost never had time to do, I have to say. But, but I did have the luxury of being able to observe her do that. Um, as well as myself, I trained at the Tavi and I had... Um, David Campbell was my, um, my, my, uh, I know my um, wonderful, wonderful um, systems family therapist. So I, I had, I always, um, you know, veered towards the, 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 the kind of the family therapy model, systems model, and was always so interested in um how the how the family was interacting with each other and how you know the parents interacted with the school and and I suppose other people like um Amelia Dowling who was also at the Tavistock who was involved when I was you know on on the course she's wrote that um you know that wonderful and she's run courses as well but that that wonderful book about you know the school and the EP and and um, the, the parent and that the danger of getting triangulated and so on um, and it's it's a tricky a tricky thing to sometimes um, explain and justify with some psychologists that aren't used to um, using the model but we very much believe that it's really helpful if you um, do a piece of work first with the teacher around the child before you meet the parent and there are many psychologists who think that's not right you need to to bring the parent in right at the beginning so everything is you know everybody lays the, the cards on the table it's open and honest and transparent from the start parents don't think that you're you know you're having conversations about their child and they're not privy to it um but but the, we um, find that way of working so um, unbelievably helpful and positive in most cases. I mean, there are obviously times where you know so little about a family situation or a child's um, developmental history or where they've, you know, they're schooling before, where it makes perfect sense to involve the parent right from the start. But if something's quite stuck and feeling a bit negative, and perhaps, you know, they're thinking we need to request an EHC. That's the perfect place, I think, to, to, to do a piece of work first with the, with the teacher before you bring in the parent. And that way you can, um, if you're using the sort of the frameworks and some of the psychology, 
it's it's a bit of a it's hard work when you write it up and everything but if you can reframe it as a psychologist in your write-up um even if it's just you know a long paragraph so that you know the, the teacher has defined the difficulties as x and you have then after the meeting the process that you've gone through and now uh summarizing the concerns as why with maybe a few ideas thrown in and hypotheses about more information we need to find out from the parent. It'd be really helpful to involve them in. But you've also sowed the seeds for the teacher to do a few things that you would have jointly kind of come up with before you do meet the parent, then you've already got that shift by the time you meet the parents. And so you're saying to the parents, look, this is, this is, you know, these, this is how the concerns were when we met which have already been reframed by through the process um what's happened since teacher you know tell us how things have gone since we last met and and nearly always that's such a positive place to start and and uh, you know I, I, I if i had a penny for every time because sometimes i would say to the parent when i would read out the summary of 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 the child which will be positives as well as concerns obviously strengths as well as concerns and say does that sound like your child you know does that sound you know the best does that sound and they would say that you've summed them up so well you know sometimes they would say that because of course as a psychologist you're quite you know you're putting in all the strengths and everything so it's, it can work really well when you do it like that but that's quite a bit of work because you've got to take all of the the thinking and summarize it in a way that parents can access you know um but our old um, framework that that perhaps you would have the full consultation request had that had that summary that you would then have as a starting point for the, when the joint school family meeting, yeah, which I think used to work so well. No, it was making me think a little bit about some of the stuff that um, in in the current year group and in in Jess and, and Emily's year group is this point about teachers having a space to like just sort of say, this is what's been happening. And that actually a, a permission to be able to just, I think the phrase we use is this discharging of affect, just get the emotion and the feeling and the kind of the worry about why is this not working or why is progress not being made? That what you've been saying, Helen, has been making me think about perhaps that space being really necessary for some teachers just to be able to release us Whereas the more people you start to involve, potentially, as, as it would be for anybody, maybe the harder it is because you're having to hold back a little bit more or worry about unintentionally kind of, you know, raise, uh, so that, that was really coming to mind. And I think the other thing I was thinking about is something that um, Danny Newman and, and Sylvia Rosenfield have talked about in, in their their book, um, the one that the, the I was going to say the girls, the trainees use in the course about admiring the problem, that when the problem is so big and touches on school, community, home, the wider, that you can almost get stuck in this position of, oh my gosh, the problem's even bigger than we thought it because there's also this and this. And, and it, how disempowering that is for a class teacher then to feel, well, what can I do in my classroom if there's all of these other things happening? And I think I was, yeah, I was just kind of, refreshing that idea that maybe that that meeting with the EP with mm -hmm. the class teacher is really reinforcing the idea you know that you can be an agent of change there are things that can happen for you um in and and the doing that can happen and the shifting that doesn't have to involve you know the, the warden and his wife 
Yeah, I, I completely, I think you've both summarized it really well, the idea of we can engage the wider system when we need to. Um, and we're always going to engage the wider system. And, and um, it links to all the work you do, Emma, on supervision, and that teachers are one of the only professions that don't receive supervision. Um, and if you have the EP, if you have the teacher and the parent in that first meeting, often the positions that they can take in relation to the MP, EP are to impress upon the EP how difficult and complex and how significant the child's needs are. And in a way, the teacher has to do that not to lose face mm -hmm. in front of the parent, because if the teacher's saying, uh, well, actually, I'm finding it difficult to manage, then the parent is losing confidence in the teacher. So if we provide that safe space for the teacher to say it as it is, and that we're sitting alongside them, um, and we're not being solution forced, but we would bring in solution focused thinking along the way to help shift things, to help reframe things. And the teacher comes back to the joint school family in a very different position, uh, knowing that you're sitting alongside them and that we're going to be engaging the parents. In Sue Kimberg's got that lovely expression, leave no footprints. And so it's that idea of, because we're psychologists, we're really interested to know about the socialising agency of, of the family and the role that the family context has. But it may be that if we take a least intrusive minimum intervention approach that's just EP and teacher or EP teacher Senko, mm. the change may actually start to happen before you've even involved the family. And so what right have we really to trample on or delve into family issues or family context that might not actually be relevant in, in making a difference? Mm. So it's, it's about really holding back. Um, and one thing to make absolutely clear is that each, each scenario, each child that's raised for consultation, we would absolutely be saying to the Senkos and teachers, Okay, our, our usual practice is to we, we're going to let parents know that we are going to observe and meet with the teacher and we're going to invite them to a joint school family consultation a couple of weeks down the line. Um, but teachers can also say that if the parents want to come to that school consultation, if they actively choose or they've had any reason they're anxious, then they can absolutely come to that. Now, in 99% of the time with parents given the option they're happy to wait and let the school get on with the job because it's not the parents job to come in and sort out the school and tell the school what they should be doing but we can have that role because we're an ally um, and we're an ally to both the family and the school so it's, it's when I'm working with other services this is one of the biggest areas that we we touch on and cover because uh, it's hard to get your head around the idea that it's ultimately very, very respectful to and parents are a critical and have a critical and crucial role to play. But it's about when and how um, and making it clear about the rationale behind it is really important. I was just thinking it's really, again, interesting to hear both of you speak about that. And it made me think we've spoken a lot. I guess today about using consultation in that individual way um, with with children with parents maybe um, still focusing on 
I guess, an individual child and maybe their difficulties. But I was just intrigued and I just had a thought, like, I wonder how you're using consultation in terms of um, to work, I guess, more systemically, because I know that's something that, at least in my service, there's the hope that by working in that way um, with teachers or with schools, with SENCOs, that perhaps some of the more like system level or school level difficulties might be able to kind of, yeah, be worked out or be thought about in that sort of way. And I was just wondering whether you find that your model or the way that you practice is helpful for that or, yeah, whether you've got an experience that you'd be willing to share. Well, um, we would always be talking to schools about consultation at an individual group and organisational level. And we always emphasise how interlinked they are so that even if we're working at the individual level within the consultations, we'd be talking to teachers about which of these ideas do you think would fit for more than just this one pupil or are these ideas we want to share more broadly across this key stage or take to another level and we often find that there's so much linking but one of the things that really supports that is our is our monitoring um, and so for years and ever since I've joined Kensington and Chelsea um, we've done monitoring which involves recording consultations we've been involved at at the different levels and then for individual consultations looking very much at um, uh, gender race and ethnicity levels of need um, and comparing that with the school population to see whether there are any patterns in the consultations that are being raised um, whether we're being offering a service to all students or there's a particular group of students that are being over prioritized and that really helps us to kind of look at and and call to help schools call to mind other students that maybe are being overlooked and for a while with our monitoring we were also picking up um, that we needed to be more proactive in having on our trackers, children looked after, children in need, children at risk of exclusion, children who are part of the traveller community, and that we were actively raising those in our planning meetings with Senkos and Heads um, and offering additional time sometimes so that those children who were being overlooked or not raised for consultation as much, we could have much more of a balance and that it was much more representative of the community. Um, so how did I get onto that? I can't think you were talking about the organizational and group individual level, yes. Um, and so our annual reviews as well would be where we would share this information with heads. And, and let's say, for example, we'd noticed that um, lots of concerns being raised around uh, a particular need. Of course, that then directly translates into the idea of, is there something we could offer to all whole school staff at this? So if you're collecting that information and looking at it over the course of a period of time, you can really start to see patterns that then you can feed back into the system and help with the planning for the next year. It's such a personalised way of doing it, though, because you're using the school's own experiences and their own data of, you know, themes, patterns, ideas that kind of are coming up. It's not a kind of a pick off the shelf. Oh, this will be a thing that we can offer everyone. It feels really tailored and, and quite personalised to what's kind of coming up for staff at, at, at that time. Yes. If, if it seems that there are quite a lot of consultations being raised over literacy, for example, then... Mm. You know, you clearly would say, you know, you seem to be um, 
quite a lot of need why don't we do something a bit different you know and maybe do do some training in literacy or you know or it could be something to do with behavior and maybe you need to look at um you know the, the outside areas or bullying or you know well, whatever it, it could lead to something that would be be wider and more systemic um yes that there was something else that i was thinking of i i know we, we do we do use um for example uh using um, appreciative inquiry as, as, a, as a sort of a model to help, um, you know, think positively about um, a, a future or how things could change and be different um, and appreciating the best of what already exists um, is, is something that we often, not often, but it's, it's one of the sort of the tools that we will use if, if, say, for example, there's a lot of concern about an individual child um, but with a lot of members of staff, then you can involve quite. And this could be in a secondary school, or it could be in a in a in a primary school as well. You can involve um, have sort of a group consultation with several of the teachers if they can all get together to to kind of think about a, 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 you know a, just one child together as a group, which can be very um, yeah. which can be very powerful sometimes. Yeah. So we do have um, use consultation for groups as well of groups of staff if you see what I mean as well yeah. and that fits with the diagnostic behavior questionnaire as well doesn't it that Patsy Wagner and Chris Watkins developed that's really useful framework in secondary schools for getting groups of teachers together to look at patterns um, with one of the key questions being when does the behavior not occur and that's often the most illuminating one uh, of the whole group exercise yes so there are different frameworks that fit for group and organisational level consultations. That's been really, really helpful and really useful. And I think the point you made about looking at the different consultations and monitoring them and looking for patterns is something that I think I'm definitely going to take away from this. I know one school I'm working with at the moment, it feels like there's definitely a theme coming up from some of the consultations I've been doing. And I'm trying to make that shift at the moment um, about making it more systemically and how to approach it more systemically I was just wondering if you had any other recommendations um for us as trainees if there was one key recommendation as we go into consultation if it's something to read or something to watch or mm. something to rem just to remember and take away from this what would that be that's a difficult one well um the, the one, one of the things that um we talked about was articles that kind of you know have have a particular impact um and i think uh, th there are also training courses that i think have had particular impact for me helen is tavistock trained so she's had more experience of this than me but um patsy and amelia ran a um a joint a joint school family systems training course over a couple of years um at the institute and our whole service went went to that um, and that was hugely instrumental for me in, in sort of in, in, in influencing my practice and I think the, the other things that we absolutely prioritized as a service and I think this is one of the biggest developments in the consultation model um, was solution focused thinking and the training that we got from from brief so we'd almost go on annual training events um, and, and Michael White narrative therapist when he came over to, um, to 
England years ago, I think it was at SOAS, was it, Helen, that he came? And our whole team went to see him at Insu Kimberg. So really, I would say as much that you can read from Insu Kimberg, Michael White, Steve mm. Shazer. Um, and I think the, the other thing that's coming in at the moment is... Um, how much video interaction guidance, the attuned principles, how that can completely influence the process of meetings. So readings around those would massively affect. But I think if there was one article that um, I use really widely, because I think it sums up um, a, a lot of concerns around the use of psychometrics. It's Colin Newton, um, who works for Inclusive Solutions, and his article's called Problems with IQ and Psychometric Assessment. And it, he traces back um, the use of psychometric assessments from 1940s and Cyril Burt. And I'll never forget, because Patsy used to um, circulate it to all senkers and head teachers at the start of every year. And then we could have an open and honest conversation with heads and senkos about where if we were to go predominantly down this route what sort of thing would it lead to and it was taking us in the wrong direction so it's illuminating and it helps with scripts and ideas um so i would suggest and they've just updated it this year and uh, there's a blog link so i can share that with you if you'd be interested yes. maybe i would add um some of the, there's a book that um yasmin ajmal wrote and I forget who she wrote it with now. Um, Is it the green and white one? The Solutions in Schools one? Yes. Yeah, yeah. Right. I, trained, I trained to be a teacher, would you believe, with Yasmin? Um, and that that's a great book. Also, um, I, I'm, I really um, love some of the, um, the narrative therapy ideas. And, but it's quite, it's quite academic and dense to get your head round in many cases but if you can find stuff that's very accessible um like, like you know michael what are the little books that um we had lots of copies of which were about um using narrative therapy in the classroom um because what is narrative therapy i think it's alice morgan, alice morgan um, yes so some of her books are much easier with, with small chapters on different cases and there's you know michael white's sneaky poo um um story um that I find that very helpful in in work with um with families um it's been interesting actually just recently kind of thinking about um I think the events of 2020 meant um you know this is a it's a very white profession isn't it with with the majority white kind of um background of, of, of educational psychologists and kind of really trying to think about psychologies that weren't rooted in particular ways of thinking or privileging or oppressing. Um, and the, the importance of things like Tree of Life, um, with, you know, very informed by, by narrative principles and, and developed uh, in, in Zimbabwe, that, that the benefit of the idea that narratives are universal Yes. Every every culture tells stories. Every every it's a universal way of trying to make sense of experience is to try and put some sort of story around us. Um, and just kind of remembering the value of um, stories and ways that, that we talk and being able to retell or reauthor your story. And perhaps that touches on part of what happens when you Helen, you were mentioning about when you write the 
what it was like at point A. And then when you write it with the psychology and the adding in and the kind of emphasis on strengths, it, that feels like an, opp an opportunity of reauthoring a story or kind of challenging a dominant narrative that's been quite saturated with, with yeah. difficulty. Um, but yeah, it, that, that, the, the never to run away or to forget the benefit mm -hmm. of, of that narrative approach and how, how salient it can be mm -hmm. across cultures and, and, and in a much more culturally responsive way at times yes. too. Yes. Yeah. That reminds me of, um, Jane, you might want to just say something about um, Cook and Talk from that organisation that um, um, worked with um, refugees. Um, but it was it was a um, a technique that or, or an activity I should say that um, we found um, really helpful um, post Grenfell. Do you want to mm. say a little bit about it, Jane? Because you you ca you came across it, didn't you, and developed well, it? Well, yes, I was working with um, uh, an organisation called Local Welcome, who um, are a charity that was setting up um, cook and eat in local communities where you just had local volunteers who would uh, get together with um, refugees and asylum seekers to cook a meal um, on a Sunday once a, once a fortnight. Um, and so as a local as a local group of volunteers, we had all the equipment and um, the recipes. And it was basically step-by-step -step recipes for making tabbouleh, um, I can't remember what else, chickpea salad, fruit salad. Um, and so you had step-by-step -step instructions and you'd be partnered with an asylum seeker guest or a refugee guest and there would be structured questions to facilitate the conversation that were very carefully um, moving away from the idea of trauma. So the first question might be, what's your favorite meal to cook? Um, and how did you cook it? And of course, using Google Translate and, phone, and phones, and you'd be chopping and doing some activity at the same time. And so for the anniversary after Grenfell, when schools were um, anxious about, how we could commemorate and, and work with children and families, um, we adapted um, the model. So into making fruit salad with groups of children and having conversations um, using restorative questions about how they'd coped over the year. So things like, um, uh, you know, what challenges have you overcome this year? When have you found time to relax and have fun? Um, what, um, what things have, have what acts of kindness have you noticed? Um, what's what's been what's helped you? And so, just in making fruit salad together in a group, children were having challenging, difficult conversations, but that felt very restorative. Um, and I think that memory's probably been triggered for Helen because some schools also did whole school tree of lives forest and ending up with a forest of life that involved the whole community mm. so it was using these sorts of approaches that um the whole community can can engage with um mm. really powerful back I suppose to end on that point about it's the the difference that makes the difference, like you so rightly pointed out at the very beginning about what is it that we're bringing as psychologists into a situation when there's huge expertise in classrooms, there's huge expertise in homes, 
um, and wanting to be able to bring something that's distinctive or unique or helpful, I guess, more than anything else. Um, yeah, that, that part of maybe what we are bringing or we would hope to be able to bring is the psychologies that are the difference that, that will add something to, to the work that and the brilliant work that people are already doing. Yeah. I, I personally just wanted to say a massive thank you to you, but I could talk to you or listen to you more importantly um, for ages. There's so much um, in, in what you've shared and I'm, I feel really privileged that we've had a chance to have had this conversation. So thank you both very much. And I'm sure Jess and Em would, would want to say thank you too. Thank you both so much. It's, yeah, it's been such a privilege, especially as a trainee, um, having this time with you. And like Emma said, I could listen to you the whole evening. Um, some really brilliant takeaway points. Um, and it's got me really excited to continue in this training journey and beyond in consultation. So thank you.